Costume Talk is an immersive exploration of costuming, featuring a parade of local costume lovers from New Orleans. I'm Shel Romelat. I'm Julianne Lanyap. And I'm Caroline Thomas. We are three costume designers in New Orleans who spend our lives making, wearing, and discussing costumes. Join us as we take a deep dive into the glitzy, blue-filled world of Mardi Gras costuming, which here happens all year long. We have conversations with other costume lovers and makers in NOLA that often lead to unexpected places. Because costuming isn't just about playing dress-up, it's a way of life that can change who you are. Hi everyone, welcome to Costume Talk. I'm Shel Romalad, your host, and I'm joined today with my co-host, Caroline Thomas. How you doing, Caroline? I'm pretty good. I'm holding in there. And exciting news, we are joined today again back in the house is Julianne Lagnap. Julianne, I am so glad you're home because when you are not here, a part of my soul is lost. So welcome back, Julianne. Thank you. It's good to be back and uh, glad to see you shining brightly over there. I'm trying, you know. So this is the episode that we all felt needed to happen right now. Caroline, Julianne, and myself are all uh, carnival artists. We make costumes. In addition to that, I have a business that... uh, you know, I sell costumes. Caroline is a float maker. We are people who, you know, costuming is not only our way of life, but it's our way of making our lives and our livelihoods. And when we recorded our last podcast, our interview with Leroy, that was actually the day that the mayor announced that we would be canceling Mardi Gras parades in New Orleans uh, due to COVID. And Which we noted, she didn't actually announce it. It well, was just like came out on the website, and I think it got revealed. But whatever, yeah, it, it was, was a cluster yeah. in proper New Orleans fashion. It was just like, oh, we found out because for some reason the New Orleans website says that it's canceled, and now we're going to announce it. But or, or fine, you know, whatever. Uh, some journalists had the wherewithal to ask the question at a yes. Uh, we, we, we officially had to accept that the parades are just not happening. Right. And we, we, you know, this was something that um, we've been preparing for mm-hmm. for a while and, and, and been but talking it still hurts. about. Like feel your grief and accept that grief. Yeah. And we had talked about it even briefly that night, but we didn't want to get into it that night because it was like we're recording this podcast and we can't really think about this now. Um, it's been about a month since then. And a lot has happened in that month. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about Carnival and let's talk about how we can support our community through what is a pretty difficult time because it may seem it's a scary time right now. And it seems maybe silly to a lot of people to be worried about Mardi Gras, but Mardi Gras for a lot of people is way more than a party in the streets. It's it it truly is how we survive. Yeah, New Orleans is a city that survives off of tourism. But beyond that, I mean, it's just psychologically, it's it's like, I think for the rest of the, the America, they talk about, oh, like COVID, it's going to affect Christmas, it's going to affect all these things. But for New Orleanians, like, Mardi Gras is bigger than Christmas. Like, 
way bigger than Christmas. And this is how we achieve some sense of normalcy in our year. Yeah, and it's um, it's scary. I mean, I will full on own that on a personal level, I'm very excited and optimistic about all the ways that this Mardi Gras can be more beautiful and intentional and meaningful than ever before. But, you know, as an artist and on a, as a business owner, I'm, I'm also terrified and I'm, I'm scared for myself and my friends. I'm scared for my musician friends, for my service industry friends, all the people that really rely on this time of year to support themselves. And so, you know, we're we're sitting here in a very complicated time where we want to cling to these beautiful feelings of celebration and connection and elation. But we're not going to be able to do that in the same way. And in the past month, I was really inspired by what I see happening around me, in particular with the initiative of the Crew of House Floats, which is this idea that... uh, Who do we... Who started it? Megan Boudreaux? Megan Boudreaux. I think that... Yeah, but it's like one of those things where it just caught off like wildfire. But kudos to her, because, girl, that's an amazing idea. And, you know, in classic New Orleans fashion, it's like, oh, like, send a tweet out, you know... Oh yeah, funny idea that turns into something that now the whole city is invested in, and yeah, they had no idea what they were getting into, and now suddenly they, yeah, I, all the all the people involved in that are amazing, but it's also just like I, I as I feel residual anxiety for them because they suddenly found themselves having to basically run like this massive operation. I'm really glad that when. You and me and Steve talked about that kind of concept happening back in May on your back porch about people are going to be decorating their houses. I'm really glad that none of us posted it on Twitter and wound up having to follow through with that. Yeah. But and for those that are not aware, basically the crew house floats is an idea of like, let's decorate our houses like floats for the upcoming Mardi Gras and that instead of having everybody congregate in this really unsafe way at a parade route that we can just create this massive public art initiative around the city. And um, yeah, people are into it and people like ordinary, and and again, proper New Orleans fashion, ordinary people are suddenly, I have, I have a friend that works in Mardi Gras and he has started offering just paper mache classes, teaching people how to build, large-scale papier-mâché props if they want to, like, decorate their porch. And he already is up to 100 people signing up because um, people just want to learn. They want to figure out how to bring Mardi Gras to their stoops. And so people can just, like, what, drive around or walk around their neighborhood and encounter these really amazing pieces of public art. And some of them are going to be, like, masterfully, co- like, complicated and um executed and uh other people it's going to be like real weird and funky and homemade and that's the beauty of Mardi Gras and if you're out on Mardi Gras day in New Orleans you'll see people in fully professional head-to-toe costumes and you'll see somebody who is just like 
I just made this thing out of a bunch of paper bags and uh, spray painted them hot pink. And you're like, that is equally amazing. So I can't wait to see what people come up with. And I think it's crewofhousefloats.org actually now you can go to Yes, it. they've officially right. launched their um, website. And I mean, like people are busting ass. It's amazing. There's, I think, like custom throws and I, there's all kinds of information you can find on there. So, but I'm excited because my neighborhood is Broadmoor and our theme, because each neighborhood, I don't know if this is happening in other neighborhoods, but my neighborhood has chosen a, like, we're almost like a sub crew you know, as a neighborhood, uh-huh. and the theme is staycation, and Ooh. I'm excited because Broadmoor floods where I live, if you know yeah, anything it's, about it's New Orleans, Broadmoor yeah. is like basically at the bottom of the drain, and we flood, we flood over nothing. Especially Shell Studio, it I is mean, the lowest like point ridiculous. of Broadmoor. The smallest rainstorm, and we flood. So... The first time I heard like crew of house floats, I was like, oh, my float, my house is a boat. Like, I wish my house floated. If my house had floated, I would have saved a lot of money when <laughs> we flooded. Oh, and so the other di- idea, I, the other day, I got very excited to, uh, like, we're going to be a cruise line, Carnival Cruises. Oh. That's my, that's my house float. I've had some visions of beyond the houseless idea of just COVID safe costumes. And I don't know if we're going to execute it because we have, in classic fashion, more ambition than we have time. But um, Dana Bueller, who's been staying with me, who is uh, Mardi Gras Customs on Instagram and does amazing papier-mâché and um, different carnival-style art, um, we've been kind of co-bubbling because she's been living with me. And we wanted to create a kind of staycation costume for Mardi Gras Day where basically we recreate a living room um, just encased in plastic sheeting. And we just spend the entire day in our bathrobes and just watching Netflix within our little like COVID bubble. But we could just have it on wheels and roll it through the quarter. So that's our vision. I hope we can execute it because we also, like I said, we've put our irons and many different fires but um i'm curious to see what people do on Mardi Gras day i mean it's such a gamble because you don't know when we're going to go into lockdown in any second but there's so many ideas of what you can do where you're basically encased in plastic whether you're just like a barbie doll in a box or you are you know a fish in a bowl or like a lizard in a terrarium like there's so many options yeah it's uh, there is and uh, you know we are very supportive of masking and social distancing and being safe. So I want to make it clear that we absolutely respect and abide by whatever the restrictions are, which can change at any time. So y'all better mask up because, you know, we want to at least be able to go out in the street in a costume, you know, safely distanced and covered and enjoy that space and time, which we technically should be able to do. And what's cool about the Crow of House Floats is that it's literally providing us with a setting, like, you know, new set and setting. We don't have the rolling parades, but it's just built around us. So we're dressing the space around us, and we can dress ourselves still and, you know, still figure out a way to 
experience the joy and the transformation and the magic of Mardi Gras, even if it is a little different this year. Yeah. And I think if you look at the history of Carnival, um, you know, parades didn't roll during either of the world wars. It has also been canceled for like yellow fever. I mean, we've, we've had, you know, we take it for granted in the modern world of not having any like major pandemics since uh, the Spanish flu, but this is something that has been with us since the beginning of humanity. And we find ways of persevering. I mean, if you look at Venice carnival, they have been through endless, um, disruptions in their carnival when it comes to various forms of the plague and we will figure it out and there'll be a way. And I think that especially a city like New Orleans, we are tenacious and we will find a way to be creative. We will find a way of connecting to people. I mean, we already have through this pandemic so far and that will just continue and we need it. We need it right now. We need to find creative ways of connecting with people. Um, And so I think it's going to be really exciting to see what people come up to. I'm feeling pretty inspired by my community. And certainly one of the people that inspires me the most is Devin DeWolf of Red Beans, the founder of Red Beans, who then went on to transform the crew of Red Beans, a costuming parade, Um, Not only into a franchise of other bean-related parades, but in the time of COVID here, very early on, he pivoted and he turned the crew of Red Beans into a nonprofit that was generating money and raising money to support feeding those that were in need on the front lines and then turned that effort into an initiative that was feeding our culture bearers in this city called Feed the Second Line. And now, as we are facing the cancellation of Mardi Gras parades and a very different Mardi Gras, he's teamed up with Caroline over there, and together they have hatched a plan for how to support and put out-of-work carnival artists, specifically float makers, who are the heart and soul of Mardi Gras. If you're not aware of that, then you really should spend some time talking to Caroline and listening to... (laughs) I will nerd your ears off. She will tell you all about. I mean, you know, they do the real work of Mardi Gras. And so Devin's journey and what he's been able to do is really inspiring. It should inspire all of us to think about ways that we can keep the energy of carnival alive. And that's what we're here to do today is to to let this person talk about his story and talk about our experiences and feelings and to encourage you to, to believe and to keep the faith because we can have carnival in one way or the other and you can still get all those great warm and fuzzy, fuzzy feelings. Um, so we're going to give you some tips on how you can do that. Yeah, because it doesn't begin or end with what Devin's doing. I think that he is one very ordinary person um, that has built up this organization. But I'm hoping through this that beyond what Devin is doing for float builders, that this inspires people in other 
parts of New Orleans culture or even outside of New Orleans um, that have been deeply impacted by COVID to realize that they can kind of find ways within their community of helping out those that are, you know, maybe inhibited by the kind of restrictions of COVID right now. And that there's ways that you can be keeping people creatively engaged and well-funded and excited about what they're doing, that they're hopefully just, if you see how Devin approaches this, maybe that'll inspire you to create your own little project. Exactly. So after the break, we will be back with an interview with Devin DeWolf, the founder of Red Beans. Stay tuned. All right. Uh, welcome all. And we are here today with my good friend and sometimes co-conspirator, Devin DeWolf, also sometimes called Devin Myers, depending on if we're talking his married name or not. Uh, he is the founder of the Red Beans Parade and also the mastermind of many different cultural phenomenon around the city. And so we're going to talk about some costuming, talk about some uh, culture and some projects he's working on. Uh, but yeah, we go way back to my, when I used to work at K Cafe, like with like 10 years ago and Devin lived around the corner and would come in every morning for his breakfast sandwich. And I think one day you came in and was like, Hey, I'm starting this crew. Uh, do y'all want to join? <laughs> and I think I mostly joined because you had really good food at your house. And we would, at that point, red beans was small enough that everyone would come and just bean in your living room and um, you always had a big pot of food, and that's really the way to my heart. I will come consistently to any uh, event if there's going to be a big pot of food for me to take care of. So welcome, Devin. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, thrilled to be here to talk about one of my favorite things in the world, costuming. And, um, you know, rest in peace, K Cafe. Uh, yes. Always will be in my heart. No, I mean, maybe, maybe some heart disease as well. But I'm yeah. thinking about nothing but cupcakes right now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, which oddly enough is part of, I mean, anybody who knows my costume work, I do a lot of cake themed stuff. And that definitely comes back from being a little baby artist, working at K-Cafe, making cupcakes for hours and hours and more hours. So, yeah, it all comes full circle. But yeah, I think we all kind of have some connection with Devin. He's one of those people that just seems to have his hand in a lot of different pots and a lot of different um, creative endeavors around the city. Well, yesterday I was putting up my Christmas decorations and my neighbor stopped to chat. I mentioned that I'm a costume designer and an artist. And his first response was, do you know Devin Myers? And I laughed and I said, yeah, he's actually coming on our podcast tomorrow. So it's a very small world. And Devin and I know each other from art markets 15 years ago, uh, the first art markets after Katrina. Yeah, you're one of the probably first people I made friends with in New Orleans uh, way back when. And um, to all the fellows listening, when you get married, if your your bride-to-be has a better last name than you, you need to take her name. Yeah, DeWolf is way cooler than Myers. Absolutely, no question. <laughs> Total upgrade. Total upgrade. Devin's also a badass stay-at-home dad, which, I mean, not, not stay-at-home because he's always doing a thousand things, but, um, but props to the dads in the world. Yeah, that's what I, so I first met Devin when I opened my store here in the Marigny like three years ago, and Devin just popped in one day randomly, and 
introduced himself and you know I'd heard of red beans of course but I it just wasn't on my particular uh, Mardi Gras calendar really until I started spending more time on this side of town and when he came in and introduced himself, it was just like, hey, I, you know, this is my crew and we're all about supporting local businesses and I'm so excited you're here. How can my crew help you? And it was really a cool thing to have just that vote of confidence from someone, you know, in the neighborhood when I had first opened and we have a street party every Looney Gras when Red Beans comes by inspired by Devin's idea like hey put some music out here let's like you know just create an a, an amazing atmosphere whether you're in the parade or not and we do it every year and it is our best day at the store it's the most fun and we, you know we're slammed it's really busy so well and it's Lundy Gras so everyone's panic buying that's like when you well, go see, full. Yeah, well that that was really surprising to me because I would never like buy Lundy Gras if I don't have it forget it I'm pulling from the stashes like I'm not going shopping on Lundy Gras but, but a lot of people do and I'm thank, grateful for that so I know. usually spend Lundy Gras making my costume for Mardi Gras and it, it's the day that I have to finish things up and it's like a co- the cobbler has no shoes kind of yeah, thing. I'm like, yeah, I've given up by that point. I'm like, if it isn't done by then, forget it. Yeah. Well, Devin, when did you move to New Orleans? Well, you're from Charleston originally, right? Yeah, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. So did I. I didn't know that. Yeah, West Ashley. No way. West of the Nasty? Yeah. Nice. That's where I grew up. And, um, you know, you can walk around Charleston and it looks sometimes like the lower garden districts. It's like it's nice older sister that followed all the rules. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. not well, much uh, happening on the <laughs> street. like the good old boy older brother. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't get the funky side. Yeah. Lots of pop collars. Yeah. Yeah. They have a beach though. I mean, it, yeah. I wish we did, but you know, can't have it all. So I grew up there and... Um, I actually, like, New Orleans wasn't on my radar at all. But when I was in college, I got to live in Brazil for a year. And that's when Katrina happened. So I experienced Katrina from the perspective of an American abroad. And I saw it in the news because it was obviously really in the news in Brazil. And then when I came back to, um, like, at the end of my semester, my end of the study abroad in Brazil, I was in Charleston for my winter break and I thought I'm just going to go volunteer and see what's up in New Orleans and um, I had gotten into photography so I came here originally as a photographer with the idea that I would donate my time to any group that could use good photography so I was thinking maybe a nonprofit doing cool stuff would want to document their good work and then maybe they would be able to raise more money or something by showing those pictures. Uh, So that was like um, December of 2006. And then after day number two, I think I had a shrimp po' boy, had heard John Boutte sing, and found some really nice lawn chairs on Bayou St. John. And I was like, you know what? I kind of like this place. And I kept coming back throughout college. Every chance I got, basically, I would just drive 14 hours to get here. And um, when I graduated in, I guess, May of 2007, there was nothing really keeping me in Charleston. And I was like, you know what? Going to New Orleans. I'm going to move there. And that was the end of the story. There was 
a lot of that wave after Katrina of people coming here, I know that a lot of the first members of Red Beans were like teachers because you were a teacher at the time. And it seemed to be a lot of people that had come down, um, you know, post Katrina as part of that kind of, whether it was Teach for America or some other program. And um, it was kind of an interesting time in the city. I mean, it was a lot of, there's a lot of controversy around it because there's some pushback from this, all these people coming in, but there was also um, a lot of demand for certain services. And so you had this kind of wave of people that were kind of experiencing Mardi Gras for the first time and kind of trying to figure out how they could engage with it. And I personally take a lot of, I think that is what caused a lot of that kind of like wave of like downtown Mardi Gras, like DIY costuming kind of came out of that because people didn't have those like deep connections to make work their way into like an uptown crew. But yeah, tell me a little about the origins of Red Beans. Didn't it start as like just you in a single costume? Yeah, it actually starts as a Halloween costume. So I moved to New Orleans and because I was a volunteer photographer, I was able to be a fly on the wall. And um, one of the, I guess, moments that, literally the moment that I had to move here was when I went to Super Sunday and saw Mardi Gras Indians for the first time. And uh, that forever changed me because I was like, wow, this is just the coolest thing ever. And um, I actually got to know a family um, uh, and they basically invited me into their home uh, so my very first Mardi Gras was spent at their house watching them put their stuff together. And I had visited them a couple times in the months leading up to it. So I had seen the progress of their suit. And I had also been to a couple second lines. So my very first Mardi Gras, uh, on Lundi Gras Day, I was living in the Marigny and it was dead quiet. But then I went to their house in Gentilly to watch them put their suits together and I'll forever feel incredibly grateful uh, for this experience because I just stayed up all night with them. And I took photographs and I learned about what they were doing and I just like hung out with the, the Black Feather tribe. And then Mardi Gras day, at, like 10 in the morning, they left their house and I followed them all day. And just, it was, uh, you know, I think everybody's first Mardi Gras is very special. But for me, that was like, um, just the coolest thing I'd ever experienced in my life, basically. So a couple months after that, um, that's when I started like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make a parade. And my first Halloween here, which had occurred a little bit before my first Mardi Gras, I guess. Um, I just wanted to have a good costume and I was racking my brains, like, what am I going to make for a Halloween costume? Because it's a, I know it's going to be a big deal here because I could already pick up on the costuming is kind of a thing here. So I'm racking my brains. I was at a pal's lounge having a beer and just, like, thinking. And then it came to me, uh, because of my time in Brazil, I ate beans all the time because Brazilians eat beans all the time. And after a couple months of that, my love of beans was, like, a physical... Like it made me happy when I, when I ate beans still to this day, it makes me like, I feel good. It's kind of like how you feel when you eat chocolate. And, um, I was just sitting in pals and I was like, Oh, I know I'll just glue beans to a suit and make a bean suit. Easy peasy. And I thought it would just not take that long. So I got started with a glue gun. I cloistered myself in my apartment. My roommate at the time was very, um, confused. He wasn't really a costumer, 
And he was like, I have the worst roommate in the world. Uh, he's super weird. He's just by himself in his room with a hot glue gun. And once you start making a bean suit, um, it looks kind of crappy until you finish it. And it's not going to be finished until it's really properly filled out. And so when I started that first bean suit, I knew very quickly that I had to really finish it. And so I made a full jacket and full pants. It had a fleur-de-lis on the back um, and kind of like a, a map of the city of New Orleans uh, done in rice and beans. And then on Halloween, I wore it out like on Frenchman Street and kind of around Decatur Street or kind of walked around and like people freaked out. You got the rock star effect. Totally. It's, it's addictive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How long yeah. did it take you to make it? It probably suit. took a couple of weeks yeah. of like serious. I mean, luckily for me, I just moved here and I didn't have a lot of friends. <laughs> so it like was full a- of all the classic ups and downs of, you know, your first time really digging into a costume, like frustrating moments followed by. Oh, I figured it out. Well, it was probably way heavier than you thought it was going to be because... Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's very... They actually get very heavy. <laughs> yes, I know that from experience. Um, yeah, I mean, you're royalty. Mm-hmm, I've you been king and queen. King and queen. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's how it started. And then really, I was just so inspired by the what I had witnessed with the Mardi Gras Indian tribe because I really got to see, like, they're building really tight community with all of the hours that they spend together. But then also when you put so much effort into a suit, when you put it on, it kind of, it, it can be transformative um, and it can like become something really meaningful. So I just picked that up and, um, you know, the next, like when I had experienced my first Mardi Gras and I knew, okay, in the Marigny, there's like nothing happening. And clearly Monday is the day that you would have a bean parade. Um, because of the tradition here of red beans and rice. And then I just decided, okay, next year at 2 p.m., which is a completely arbitrary time that I chose for, I don't remember why, but I was like, at 2 p.m. on Lundi Gras next year, we will parade. And because I'm a nerd, I made a PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) And then I hosted a dinner party in like October of 2009 I guess it was and um, I invited a couple people that I knew and I was in a teacher training program so I was amongst other young educators most of them hadn't grown up here and I was like hey guys um, I'm gonna make really yummy food and just come into my house and we'll just like I'm gonna pitch you this idea for a new crew and then word of mouth kind of spread and the first year we had 25 people and zero spectators, but it was the most fun day, uh, one of the most fun days of my life. Like, and you didn't have a permit or anything, you were <laughs> just going rogue. No, no permit. Uh, we had the Treme Brass Band, and Mr. Benny Jones is, like, super nice. I'd gotten to meet him earlier, luckily for me, um, and he just, like, marched with us, and we just, like, kind of zigzagged around, and... Um, we didn't have a permit. We didn't know what we were doing. We had a keg of beer and a shopping cart, 25 people in bean suits. Well, because at that point, you're still skirting the boundary of group costume with the, you know, friends playing in a band versus crew marching, you know? Yeah. The idea was always in my mind, like more of a second line. Um, and then, you know, after the first year, everybody was like, well, that was super fun. So. 
yeah, let's, let's do it next friends. year. Yeah, yeah. And it just kind of grew organically. Yeah, I think before I even um, met you at K-Cafe, I heard about you because our mutual friend, Allie, who was in the same educational program as you, she came to an art sale that I did. And she was like, yeah, you should meet my friend, Devin. He's just one of those people that like he gets an idea and he just does it. And I think that stands true today. I mean, you're just one of those people that just like, you just, you somehow have this soft power to you. You're not like a, you're not one of those people that's going to like dominate a room, but you'll make that PowerPoint and you'll make some food. And by the end of it, people are just like, I guess I'm going to go spend like two months making a bean suit. That's just what I'm doing now. <laughs> well, I knew that food is key yes. and I would just, I also love cooking. Um, that's one of my favorite things to do. So yeah, it was like an excuse to just cook for everybody on Sunday and I would do like a Thanksgiving spread every week, mm-hmm. different menu. And that was part of the spreads. fun. Um, and you know, that was the crew for the first couple of years until it got too big for that. Yeah. And so it's expanded to the point now where there are like franchises essentially that you've, you've kind of given the reins to other people so that it can grow without it becoming too cumbersome for one person. Yeah. And we also, I mean, in my mind, like what are the rules, Mm -hmm. right? Like who says that you have to all parade together and make one big parade? Because one of the challenges we had early on, we started um, inside the Marini Opera House, and it's beautiful in there, and it's a perfect way to start the parade to like have a special moment with just the crew members. But the Marini Opera House doesn't want to have more than like hundred people on on Lundi Gras, and so then we get in a situation where we are being exclusive, and like, oh, I'm sorry, you can't join because we're closed. And also what happened one year was the crowd was like too big. Like it, it changed the feeling. And conveniently for us, the solution to both of those problems is just to replicate yourself. And just like one of those organisms that copies itself and that's how they expand. <laughs> and, you know, what we're really doing is trying to tap into the specialness of a small neighborhood walking parade. And so the Marini has the Red Beans Parade. And we were like, well, let's have a different parade that's basically a bean parade with live music, with walking, with small children and all. And, um, you know, you have to make it slightly different. So we have the Dead Beans Parade. And then once the Dead Beans Parade got a little bit big, then we started our next parade, which is a Brazilian kind of influence parade called Beijão. And that is more by water. And what I'm really hoping uh, over time is to basically keep adding different versions of ourselves. And what I'm really trying to do with that is make Mardi Gras more inclusive because I'm a history, I used to be a history teacher. So I'm a history nerd. And Mardi Gras is like historically so segregated. And there's black Mardi Gras and there's white Mardi Gras. You could talk about gay Mardi Gras, I guess, too, as like its own, but they're Even like that's segregated in his own ways, sure. Yeah, so um, to me, especially uh, post Katrina in New Orleans, um, we have a really big Honduran population, mm. and we do have uh, Mexican population and Brazilian population here, Caribbean population here. So what I'm really uh, the kind of guiding principle is what are the places that have a culture of beans mm-hmm. and a culture of carnival? And those are the the base themes of our 
possible parades. So we could celebrate yeah. Mexico. We could celebrate Brazil. It and, is a weird uh, thing that when I think about those really big carnival towns, most of them also are big beans and rice towns. It's like uh, those two things go hand in hand. Yeah, I, I went to Trinidad for carnival and it, it, pilau, which is like a rice and bean mix, and it is you eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, like especially during carnival season, because it is something you can put on the stove while you work on your costume or whatever. So yeah, it's interesting. It's a very grassroots approach to carnival. But I like that you're also thinking about the crowds because it is a costume parade and the focus is that. And so you get too many crowds, you can't, because it's all about the detail with the red beans. Because for people that have never seen the red beans in parade, people do all kinds of different versions on the concept of basically beaning an outfit. And so it really can get into these super complex kind of mosaics of beans and rice. And you need to be able to get up on that. And if the crowd gets too big, it's you lose that magic. We also like the crowd experiences our parade different than other parades as well um, in that they are part of the parade and they march with us. And some of them, some of the people who come to our parade, like make their own bean suits. And I have no idea who they are. And that was part of our evolution as well was like, hey, is this a problem? Like, should we have ropes like at a second line parade and kind of keep the spectators off to the side? Or should we just like let it be kind of a free for all? And we had to think that one through. And then the same thing with people showing up in their bean costumes that are not crew members, because on one hand, you could be angry about it and say, well, they're not paying dues. And it actually costs like thousands and thousands of dollars for us to parade. We have to pay the police. We have to have a permit. We have to have insurance. There's all this other stuff. Or you could take the other approach and just say, you know what? It's kind of cool because like they might come up with a really amazing costume. And that's yeah. happened. And every year, if I see an amazing bean suit and I'm like, like if, if you're a crew member, you have a patch. And that's how we can tell who's a crew member and who's not. But every year, I'll see people in amazing costumes. And I'll be like, hey, I can tell you're not in the crew. But next year, I really hope you join. Because clearly, you got what it takes to make an amazing bean suit. Well, and some people don't want to, you know, join the crew. They really do just enjoy being able to experience it as a spectator. I mean, I was that way for Crew de Vue for years. I did not want to join Crew de Vue because I loved going so much. And sometimes I think it's nice to know that you're inspiring that sense of connection, you know, that someone just wants to be there and puts this time and effort into costuming to come out and, and just watch you. Yeah, and we've, I mean, we're happy that we've made the space for sort of everybody to experience our parade in whatever way they want. They can be a crew member, they can not be a crew member, they can just sit on the sidelines and watch us pass, or they can actually dance with us the whole way. Uh, it's very, like, we're trying to be just welcoming um, and open. Yeah, because it must be a challenge. I mean, I don't know how much you get put, I feel like you do a better job than a lot of people of maneuvering this, but New Orleans can be very suspicious of people who didn't, weren't raised here, especially people that came after Katrina. People use that as a real like marker and identity here. And here you coming in and kind of creating your own cultural tradition. And I think it's really done a great job of kind of ingraining itself into the community. But I mean, is that something you have to think about? Are there people that have given you pushback? 
Um, you know, we haven't really had a lot of pushback with that um, in particular, as far as I know, because I think that people can tell that we're like kind of respectfully nodding to some of the traditions that are here. So if you're a Mardi Gras Indian family and you see one of our bean suits, you can clearly tell that it takes like so much work and effort. And I think people kind of respect that. Um, and then like we're, you know, trying our best to, to sort of respectfully, um, like we're respectfully inspired by the second lines. And I think it's, um, you know, like we're not trying to, like we're trying to celebrate what's already here. We're not trying to like come in as like, Hey, this is a brand new thing uh, per se. I think it's an evolution of what's here. Um, I, th I think too, you really put your money where your mouth is. And mm -hmm. um, that kind of makes me want to transition to red beans kind of evolving into a nonprofit. Yeah. And I guess part of it too, is like, you have to, you have, you have to actively outreach into the community and we've been really lucky because, um, you know, Mr. Benny Jones, like the Treme Brass Band, has been a feature of our parade since the very beginning. And if you don't know Mr. Benny, like he's literally the nicest person in the world, in my opinion. And over the years, he's kind of helped guide us a little bit because he'll say, oh, hey, um, I'd like you to meet Mr. Sylvester at the Backstreet Museum. Uh, Mr. Sylvester Francis, who passed away this year, um, you know, but that is how and why we end at the Backstreet every year. And when we end our parade there, what we're also doing is we're supporting the Backstreet because they sell uh, food and drink to the crowd. So for them, that's a day that they can make some uh, money to keep their museum going. And it also became part of our tradition. And, you know, when Mr. Sylvester was around, like we would meet up and we would talk about, all right, uh, Lundy Gras coming up. What can we do, the crew to help? Like, what are what are your plans? How, how can we support? And um, a similar thing happened with a, a little tiny bar in the seventh ward called Seals Class Act Lounge, where one day Mr. Benny was like, you should go talk to Miss Seal and do your beaning at her bar because it was too big for my house and I had to get it out of my house. And then obviously um, I got married and my wife didn't necessarily want to have beaning sessions every week at her house either. So having a bar was like perfect. And Mr. Benny kind of guided us towards what is essentially like a black neighborhood bar. So it's kind of surprising that you would find our group there except we've been introduced through a very respected person who knows me as a person. Mr. Benny knows Miss Hill. And we can basically say, Miss Hill, like, we love your spot. Thank you for your hospitality. And we're also going to buy, like, beers every week at your business. So we're supporting your business. And it's, over the years, just been nice. Like, we know the bartenders, and they know us. And it's kind of like, you know, after you do that for a couple years, um, and if you're sincere and you're honest with people, then I think you just build up a reputation. And um, that's what our crew has kind of done uh, over time. And, um, you know, that's just kind of like what I would like the crew to do, because I think that's the right way to be. And that kind of transitions into what happened when COVID hit. And your wife is an ER doctor. So for y'all 
that don't live in New Orleans are maybe not aware, like it, New Orleans is one of those cities that got hit really hard, really fast. And um, the hospitals were overrun. And that's when you kind of saw that there was this opportunity to step in with this community on uh, this that you had already kind of formed through Red Beans. Yeah, so Red Beans um, was a nonprofit 501c3, which was very lucky. And we had always tried to like give back in some way. We had a charity bean tournament that was a spoof of the college basketball tournament, which was supposed to be in March of this year. Um, so Mardi Gras, you know, came and went and it was beautiful and wonderful. And then promptly, like five days later, COVID hit because what happened is we were all hugging on each other and dancing in the streets and spreading COVID. And then, oh yeah, hundreds of thousands of tourists just like came here as well. And so that's what made us one of the first epicenters of COVID. It was like Seattle, New York city and New Orleans. And, um, my wife would go to work every day. And then she would come home and I would get kind of the play by play uh, of her day by day experience. And basically, if you were a healthcare worker in those early days, you know, um, you didn't know much about this uh, virus. You knew that it was deadly. You knew that it was spreading in the air and that you didn't have proper protective gear. And so essentially, uh, my wife and all of the other healthcare workers, the nurses, doctors, security guards, cleaning staff, um, everybody who worked in a hospital was essentially going to work with the understanding that they could accidentally um, get COVID and die, or they could bring COVID back home with them and infect their family. And that combined with the, like, like an ER doctor is trained for years and years and years and they know what to do in any situation so if you have a heart attack they know what to do if you're shot they know what to do but if it's like a new disease that nobody knows anything about a new virus they don't really know what to do and that is really freaky for them so they spend their whole shift like the mental energy of trying to figure out like what do we do with this thing that we don't know anything about plus the stress of, oh my God, this could kill my family. You know, that's like such a heavy thing. Um, so I had a front row seat to that. And the first five days, my wife would just come home and she was like exhausted and just like super stressed out. And I was really just trying to take care of her, like make sure the food was cooked and that she could get as much sleep as possible and that our house was kept tidy because it would make her happier. Um, and then one day she came home and she was like, man, this nurse brought cookies. And I was like, wait a second. Oh, of course, cookies. It makes total sense when you think about it. Because yeah, back to the food. I didn't have to fold the laundry. I could have just made cookies. Yeah, because <laughs> every workplace is the same. Like, it doesn't matter if you're a school teacher or a doctor or a float builder or whatever. Like, if somebody brings really yummy cookies to work, everybody's happier. And so at that moment, I was like, oh, of course, this is totally an idea. And, you know, my crew has like a mailing list of our crew members. There's 300 people on that email list. So that night I talked to my wife and I was like, all right, here's what we do. Let me let me buy uh, $60 worth of um, these little Brazilian bonbons called Brigadeiros from one of the restaurants that was going to be in our bean tournament that I just canceled. So I can 
I can buy the Brigaderos, which are delicious, and they're also easily shareable. So it's like a pretty COVID-safe food because it's like this little bonbon. And I placed the order, and I was like, Annalise, you know, can you pick it up on your way to work tomorrow? And she was like, oh, yeah, the nurses and the doctors are going to love it. Like, this will be great. So I put it in an email, and I said, all right, guys, this is like a very small thing that we could do. But essentially the idea is that our healthcare um, workers like really need some moral support right now. And also our restaurants, and New Orleans is a restaurant city, our restaurants are about to like really struggle. So what if we create a win-win and we raise money and we buy the healthcare workers some food? And at this moment, you know, everybody was quarantined at home. Nobody knew what to do. Everybody was freaked out. And we all kind of collectively knew, like, if anybody's going to save us right now, it's the healthcare workers. So I just, you know, clicked send and I posted it on Instagram and it kind of blew up. Um, and it was crazy because, you know, we started with $60 and then after six weeks we raised $1.2 million. Um, and we were literally the biggest operation in America. Whoa. Hands like it wasn't even close. And I know this for a fact because I've seen the stats of other cities and basically like our tiny parade group, you know, we had people that could step up and help. So that enabled me to build a bigger operation and have trusted people help with it. And over time, you know, the first day I think we raised like $500. So I bought $500 of food. The second day we raised $1,500 and I bought $1,500 of food. And it was really like a short-term, immediate, let's buy as much food as possible to feed as many doctors as possible because that will help as many restaurants as we can. And then over the weeks we added to it, we started hiring musicians to deliver the food because I'm like, well, they don't have work right now. And we also um, commissioned a bunch of artists to make art for us so we could have posters and things like that. Because I'm like, well, the artists just lost Jazz Fest. That's where they're going to make their money for the year. So it was really, um, you know, how can we benefit as many people as possible? And it was like a crazy wild ride. And my wife love hated it because instead of cooking her food and cleaning the house, I was like stuck on the phone yammering away all the time and trying to like make deals and stuff. But um, but you were doing it for her, right, baby? Yeah, <laughs> totally. But I know... Uh, I know people that worked in restaurants that were like the only reason that we are open right now is because of Feed the Frontline, because which is the name of the nonprofit. I don't know if we've said it yet, but the pro- nonprofit was Feed the Frontline. Well, and, Feed the Frontline well, NOLA, technically. Yes. Okay, okay. Because there's another Feed the Frontline that was national okay. that teamed up with World Central Kitchen. Ah, okay. Uh, so I have to like point that gotcha. out. Okay, yeah. Feed the Frontline <laughs> NOLA. But yeah, I know restaurants, they were like, because at that point, I mean, there are some restaurants that were serving food, but it was no, no one was leaving their house. And so it had to be only through like Postmates or something. And I know people in that end, and then um, photographer friends of mine, like Ryan Hodge and Rigsby, who was saying that, you know, that's the period where he would be working Jazz Fest or he would be doing wedding photography. I mean, the springtime, that's like this big boom for a lot of photographers. So just being able to give money to, to him was able to hold him over. I mean, it just... I met so many people that that's how they survived lockdown is through the operations you were doing. Yeah, it was, um, I guess, the 
the experience I have as a crew organizer and because we care about the community and we're like very intentional, that informed a lot of my decision-making process with how do I spend $1.2 million. Um, and at our peak, I mean, we were spending like $30,000 a day um, at 49 restaurants to feed uh, literally every ER and ICU in New Orleans from St. Bernard to uh, out in Metairie, like to Kenner, the Kenner Hospital. Like we were feeding every healthcare ER and ICU and they were like on the front line, front line, which I knew because of my wife, because my wife could tell me like, you know, like, hey, like the administrators don't really need any food because they're not risking their lives. They're in a separate building. You don't have to worry about them. But like the security guard has to talk to everybody. The cleaning people, they have to talk to everybody. So hook it up for them. And that kind of insight really was helpful. Um, and then we were very intentional about like, what restaurants are we going to buy from? You know, am I going to buy from um, a chain restaurant? No. Am I going to buy from a restaurant that really caters to tourists? I don't think so. Is anybody going to be sad if they close, you know, that lives here? Because we have to really prioritize New Orleans and New Orleanians because the reality is that nobody cares about us but us. And that's why we live here. So we have to, you know, be smart about how we spend money, where we spend money, and all that. Um, and you'd had all this experience of having people that had guided you in the past to, that through just your work in Red Beans to make sure that you were finding those right people. Yeah, and we conveniently also had a bean tournament with 32 restaurants every year. So I knew a lot of owners of restaurants. And because um, basically when you're like a small fry and a nobody, if somebody supports you, they're like, yeah, you have a bean tournament. That's cool. Like, sure, I'll give you my beans. Um, that's kind of like a test of character because you're like, oh, they're probably pretty cool people. Um, it wasn't like we were, you know, some fancy schmancy group getting their beans. So I already knew kind of. Those fancy beans, you know. Fan yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, there are some fancy beans, but like. Yeah, just sure. Um, if it makes sense, it was a, a way that I already knew 32 really nice restaurant owners mm -hmm. that I could call on. Um, so it, it was uh, convenient that we already had that kind of under our belt. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, I feel like a broken record, but I feel like every episode in uh, the show I'm like, but it's how the costuming community creates this incredible network of people that can then come together. But it's true. I mean, you it creates these bonds in New Orleans that when there is a crisis— uh, we've already got all those people on our speed dial and we can switch from like a party to a crisis real quick. Uh, New Orleans is kind of good about that. We've got some experience. So this was just one more crisis under our belt. Um, but yeah, and so you transitioned once COVID kind of at least started to plateau in New Orleans, you kind of shifted that over to your next endeavor, free, Feed the Second Line. That's right. Um, so basically Feed the Front Line died because donor fatigue happened. Mm. And so instead of all these people giving us money every day, they just stopped, um, which is probably human nature because we're like, oh, this COVID thing, it's here to stay. We'll just, okay. My wife will be like, oh, they forgot about us. They don't care about us anymore. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, it's just that everybody's screwed right now because <laughs> um, we're in it for the long haul. So basically... Um, we intentionally spend as much money as possible as quickly as possible. And it's very hard to sustain that 
because you just can't spend thirty thousand dollars a day on food um unless you're maybe beyonce <laughs> um but the whole time um i was also worried about mr benny jones and i was worried about al carnival time johnson because they are well al is um the grand marshal of our parade since the very beginning for life yeah for life he's grand marshal for life and if you ever have had a grand marshal for life you know that you can't let them get covid and pass away because then you lose your grand marshal <laughs> slash he's a nice guy and i don't want him to get covid so um he's quarantining at home and during all the initial early days of covid i was also emailing crew members and saying who would like to go grocery shopping for Mr. Al? Because then he doesn't have to go to the grocery store. And if he doesn't have to go to the grocery store, then we have basically really helped him avoid COVID. He lives by himself. He doesn't have family here. Um, Mr. Benny uh, is also an older guy. And as we are probably all aware, you know, COVID was more, uh, was deadlier to older African-American men in particular. So I wanted to protect them in any way that we possibly could. So we bought groceries for them. And then after doing that for a while and also having this crazy experience of Feed the Frontline where we literally built the largest operation in America from scratch, I learned so much from that. And it was very short-term kind of thing. Uh, it wasn't meant, wasn't built to last, but I was kind of inspired by everything I learned, plus my understanding of New Orleans culture, because I know it's um, it's not just Mr. Benny and Al. Our city is full of big chiefs, spy boys, baby dolls, musicians, uh, second line members, people who are like me uh, in a position where they create culture. But yeah, a lot of these people that you're supporting are people that I think they are providing so much for the city. You know, it's a city that is, especially these days, is so built on the tourist dollar. And these are the people that are drawing those tourists in and they're the last people to see that money. And they're often the most vulnerable. These are people that are like freelance musicians or in the case of being an Indian or any part of the black masking or parading community, they're not necessarily getting paid for it. And in fact, you're putting tons of money into being part of that. And you're not really giving any type of safety net. So for something like COVID, when it hits, it really takes the community coming forward to make sure those people are being at le very least fed. Yeah. And I, I've kind of, it's um, my thinking around this has evolved over the months as it's played out. It really started as like, let's help them avoid COVID by buying their groceries. Um, and we basically like took all of our success and cashed in all of the chips so that we could start this other project with the hope that Feed the Second Line would be long term. And over a couple months, we really learned like a lot about how to properly do it. And, um, you know, we didn't know if it would last or not last. But basically, I do believe it is here to stay because what we've realized is that our city is full of culture. Um, so we've got the Mardi Gras Indians, we've got the baby dolls, we've got all the parades, we've got all the dance groups, we've got all the musicians. And at the root of it, the people make the culture. Where I grew up in Charleston, the only culture you could 
experience. You had to buy a ticket and watch it, and it was on a stage, and you were in the audience. But here, we are the culture. And when you then get your history nerd glasses on and you look at the history of the city and segregation and inequality and all of that stuff, um, you know, it's, it's also the neighborhoods that are kind of the most disenfranchised and the most, um, like lacking access to capital that have also produced the most culture. And, we have a situation where, you know, it's, it's quite common for a Mardi Gras Indian big chief to be living, um, a very humble, like working class kind of life. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but then your cultural significance is way high versus your day to day. And so we've kind of stumbled on this thing that this philosophy that basically, in the past, culture was a one-way transaction and people had an almost parasitic experience with it where if you were masking on the street as a big chief or as a spy boy or as a baby doll, whatever, or at a second line parade, um, the people that were there could experience your cultural uh, you know, moment, but they could only take from it. And if you went to a Super Sunday, like maybe you could tell the big chief, Hey, you're pretty. But that was about it. That's all you could really do. You didn't really have a tangible way to give back. And so what we've kind of stumbled upon is we can make that one-way transaction um, a full circle because we can say, hey, do you love that stuff? If you love that stuff, you should become a monthly donor or feed the second line because we will tangibly help and support the people who make the culture, um, we will buy their groceries and we will create jobs for them. And we will tap into their abilities to make those jobs and we will celebrate them. It, this is not like a soup kitchen. This is not like a handout that feels bad. It's actually a way for us to say, hey, thank you. Because the stuff that you guys do is amazing and we love it. And because we love it, we love you because you make it. You, you are the culture. Um, and you know, we started with that, like, okay, let's try this out. Let's see if we can get a monthly donor. And we started with one monthly donor and then we're like, all right, let's get another one. And right now, like literally right now, there's 399 people who have signed up as monthly donors. And some of them are like, here's five bucks. Some of them are like, here's a hundred dollars. And for all of those people, it's like every month they're supporting New Orleans culture bearers. And then we take that money and 399 people is equal to $10,500 per month. So if you look at a whole year, that's a hundred and over $120,000. I guess that would be 120, what, $8,000. And that can create jobs that can buy groceries that can do a lot of good. But then when you start to think about it, you're like, oh, man, how many people come here for Jazz Fest? How many people around the world have a, a emotional connection to New Orleans and they've experienced it and they love it? And if we can over time build that relationship with all of those people or maybe 1% of those people, then we can actually create a super strong safety net for our culture bears. And then we can support the the 
Mardi Gras Indians, the Baby Dolls, the Musicians, this, all of the Social and Pleasure Clubs. Like, one day I want to get all of them. The Float Builders, the artists, like, the people who make our city really an interesting place. Um, I think we, we have an opportunity to build a really good safety net. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, and conveniently, we also, like, we can tap into the pre-existing social networks so we can go to a mardi gras indian big chief and say who's in your tribe who in your tribe needs support right now we can go to one of the social aid and pleasure clubs like who needs help right now from your group because right now with covid and with our economy being in ruins because we're a tourism dependent city you know some people are doing okay some people are mega struggling and so right now we're only really helping the people who are mega struggling or really, really need some support. Um, over time, as we get more monthly donors, our capacity will grow and we'll be able to support more people, more culture creators. Going back to your years of Red Beans, like you're kind of like, you don't want to be a gatekeeper. You don't want to be elitist. So where do you draw that line of like a cultural bearer? Like, does that become something that gets kind of like messy or are you just kind of... I, th I think it's pretty straightforward because you can... You can just look at what people do. You can like, hey, last year at Mardi Gras, did you mask? Have you been masking? Um, are you enriching our city in some way? It's I think it's pretty straightforward. And we don't really like want to have a bunch of rules and a bunch of bureaucracy. You know, I always think of um, Ashton Ramsey is a great example of a culture bear. He's a older man who, like, he's not really part of a group. He's not a Mardi Gras Indian. He's not a musician, as far as I know. But what he does is every Mardi Gras, he makes, like, a paper collage outfit. And he's been doing this for years and years and years and years. And every year he has, like, a new theme, and he puts on a suit, and he walks around. And it's, like, to me it goes beyond just a costume because he's created a tradition. He's created a cultural thing. And, um, or somebody like, you know, uh, like there's just a lot of kind of eccentric people in our city who make this place really interesting. And I believe that like, Hey, if you make this place more interesting, then you're a part of New Orleans being what it is and you should be supported. Like you shouldn't, you should have food security. Um, you should be able to not have a leaky roof or have healthcare, um, things like that, I think are really like, it's been a long time coming and our city has always been like an uh, impoverished place, um, but it doesn't have to be so. So I think we can fix that. Well, and we've had a lot of lessons in, if no one else is gonna do it, how can we do it for each other? And when I'm hearing you talking, all I can think is that you're really tapping into the actual spirit of Mardi Gras, which is really about giving. You know, like, it's not just about catching things and receiving, and you receive a lot of joy through those experiences. And you saw this in your first Mardi Gras, right? That, like, the more you put into your suit, the more dedication, the more love, the more that you are giving to the experience, the more you end up often really getting out of that, whether you're giving as a person who is, a, you know, a cultural bearer or just giving to support that, that really 
ultimately is what it's about. That's where those like good mm-hmm. feelings of community come from. Because you shouldn't go hungry around Mardi Gras. There should be somebody aggressively trying to feed you like a Cajun grandma. Like that should be part of Mardi Gras. And I think that energy feeds into the rest of New Orleans culture or it should. And I think it's getting there. Yeah. And beans are an essential part of a healthy gut biome. <laughs> yeah. They're also like very environmentally friendly too. There we I'd go. Like to point that out. But, um, you know, COVID has taught a lot of, uh, a lot of lessons and what we have to do is heed the lessons and we have to be like, wow, we have to really take care of the most vulnerable amongst us. And like, it's totally messed up that there's homelessness and that people have food insecurity and all of that. And like, you know, we just need to really support each other and work together, I think. And I've also become incredibly jaded and I've experienced many, 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 you know, journalists or big wigs or people who like actually have an agenda. And, um, Cause you don't take any type of, like you're doing this for free. Like you are, yeah. you don't take, there's no, you're yeah, not I'm, taking a salary. I'm good. I'm, I'm like a trophy husband. <laughs> um, <laughs> doctors get paid. You know, I used to be a school teacher. I quit that job, became a stay at home dad. Cause I'm like, I don't get paid anything. Why would I work really hard and use my entire salary for childcare? That just doesn't make sense. So I'm, I'm totally good. I feel in a really fortunate position Um, our family's good. So we don't need any more money and there's nothing I love more than, uh, I think of it all as lanyap. So every dollar that we can possibly bring into the community and for our non-New Orleans or non-Louisiana listeners, lanyap is like the extra free thing that you get. So the way that I look at my role in, in this is kind of like, I wake up every day and I'm like, how much lanyap can I bring into the community? Like, can I bring in another dollar? and put it in the pocket of somebody because that might help somebody. Uh, Can we create jobs or can we just buy somebody's groceries? Because actually that is the next best thing to putting money in people's pocket. If you go to the grocery store and you buy somebody $200 worth of groceries, that's an essential bill. Like you must eat food. You cannot go without it. You can cut off your lights. You don't need your water bill. Well, you know, you don't, if worst comes to worst, don't pay your car insurance, but you have to eat. So if we kind of take care of that fundamental expense, then we create savings that can go towards other things. So maybe somebody doesn't get evicted or maybe somebody can go to the dentist or go to fill out their prescriptions or whatever it is. Um, so I'm always happy about that. And, uh, since we started Feed the Second Line um, in, in basically April, like end of April, early May, uh, we've bought $113,000 of groceries and we've created a quarter million dollars of jobs. Because you're using musicians to go buy these groceries and deliver them or like anyone yeah. who's out of work and is affected by. Totally. Musicians make great grocery shoppers. Who knew? <laughs> you know? Um, but we are also, you know, we like, if I have an excuse to hire a Mardi Gras Indian to do beadwork design, I'm on it like white on rice and we make t-shirts and we sell t-shirts to raise money for our program. And, you know, even if I just break even on that t-shirt, 
actually, I just created a good paying job tapping into the skill set of the community. Um, and so that's a good thing. And then we're also kind of, um, you know, the, the sad situation in New Orleans is that there's a lot of nonprofits here that don't actually do anything except pay themselves a salary and get grants. And you have to actually do stuff. And I think the community is seeing that we are actually doing stuff and that uh, reputation is going to continue. And that's what's going to create like a super tight bond. So all of our donors will be bonded to that. And then when the big chiefs are out on the street and everybody's surrounding them, taking their pictures and all that stuff, instead of it feeling like a culture vulture type of situation, what I'm going for and what I really hope one day is that that moment is transformed into this is a symbiotic relationship because we love the culture and we also get to support the culture and then it feels good and um, that's kind of the like philosophical underpinnings of it all yeah well that transitions into your most recent endeavor um so for those that don't know i work in uh float building as well i design and paint floats and um we got the official um, news that the parades are canceled this year. I mean, we knew it was coming, but it's still like there's a amount of grief that comes in having it officially canceled. And the layoffs came pretty rapidly. I mean, for the company I work for, they're holding on to their workers as best they can. But some of the bigger companies, I think like uh, Blankern laid off a third of their workers as soon as they got the news. And so I reached out to Devin and we had been kind of in conversation prior to this about um, just try what was a way in which we could bring um, Mardi Gras workers into the fold of Feed the Second Line. And um, so I reached out to him and I was like, there started to be this wave that started with um, a group called the Crew of House Floats on Facebook. And basically, the, somebody just, this woman, Meg Boudreaux, on a whim, started a Facebook group with the idea that if we're not going to have a Mardi Gras this year, Let's have just decorate all our float all of our houses like Mardi Gras floats, and so we can have that same Mardi Gras energy in the streets. But of course, I immediately started getting people messaging me, wanting work from me, and the same thing was happening for all my float building friends. But a lot of people, just ordinary people in New Orleans, we're not a wealthy city. People don't have the money that it really takes to produce a parade, and I wanted to make sure these people were actually going to at least for the next couple months, if anything, be making above their normal rate so they can actually maybe sustain themselves through what's going to be the longest off season we've ever had. And I reached out to you with this idea of, is there a way that we can get this sponsored? Is there a way we can crowdsource? How can we get people's houses decorated like Mardi Gras floats using these same traditional techniques, um, but having it funded in a way where we can actually pay these people right for their talent and their skill? And I texted you on a whim, and the next day you messaged me back and said, I got $5,000, when can we start? <laughs> so we've been, um, I haven't got a lot of sleep since then, um, but we've been kind of scheming this ever since. Because I, because I, like, so for those that were, like, laid off, it was basically, like, sorry. Or, yeah. You know, and this is bye, a you're, there's nothing for you to do here. Right. And, and and it should be said See you too next year. that it's um we again like a lot of our cultural bearers in New Orleans 
we don't do as good a job as we should in New Orleans about taking care of them. And, um, you know, this used to be work that used to be union work and it used to be really solid and those unions got broken up in the eighties and so forth. Most float builders are not part of a union. They're now. not part of a union. A lot of them are private contractor, which means that they are paying all of their taxes by themselves. There's no types of health insurance. There's no type of a uh, retirement plan. A lot of these people work until their backs and knees will not let them climb ladders anymore. And then they just hope that they've uh, just old enough to collect social security and that's where they're at. And so there's not that safety net for these people. And this is a very specific skill to New Orleans. We build floats in New Orleans uh, in a way that is unlike anywhere else in the world. And it's like part of our regional popular folk culture. And the problem is because it happens behind closed doors. And, you know, you want it to be this big grand reveal as it rolls down the street. But what that means is that a lot of people that live here their entire life don't really understand who even makes the parade. And who's behind it and the sheer amount of work, the amount of people, when I tell them I work in Mardi Gras, which happens a lot because when you're buying groceries and you're head to toe in like a rainbow splatter of paint on your clothes, people come up to you. And so many people will say, I thought that was a part-time job or I thought that that was volunteers. And they don't want to occur to them that, no, we are on an extension ladder when it is 105 degrees and there's like a heat advisory index in the middle of the summer, we're building your floats. And those people just got kicked to the curb right now. So um, we're trying our best through Feed the Second Line. 20% will go towards Feed the Second Line effort, which hopefully we'll be able to pay for groceries for the following year for all these amazing people. And in the meantime, be... Um, building these kind of public art pieces around the city, taking over people's houses. Um, and uh, yeah, Devin, you can kind of talk a little bit more about the details. Well, you, um, you know, you texted me, it was during a Saints game. And I was like, <laughs> sorry, no, no, it's fine. It was a good text message. I mean, and I really look at a idea and evaluate it based on, is it a win-win? Does it create a win-win? Mm-hmm. And so Feed the Frontline was a win-win because the doctors need morale boosting and the restaurants need business. Boom, win-win. And then we made it a win-win-win when we added musicians. And then a win-win-win-win when we added artists too. So, um, you know, if an idea is solid and it creates multiple good, then it's worth a try. And so he texted me and I was like, oh, that's a great idea. And I have a weird skill set and a lot of angst that I can channel into trying to make this happen. But I also am fortunate because this year has been like insane and we've kind of built a record of success because of Feed the Frontline and Feed the Second Line. And now I've got, you know, contacts with companies and things like that. And um most importantly i think people know that like we're for real and we're gonna do it and um so yeah i thought it was a great idea and as soon as i started kind of talking to some of the companies that i know i could tell that they were gonna go for it and as soon as that happened i was like well we could definitely gotta do this because this is a golden opportunity a once in a lifetime opportunity actually to take a really crappy situation um, where a carnival is canceled and actually make it 
the most beautiful, most meaningful carnival that maybe we'll have in our life. Um, and also if we can channel that in such a way as to help support the people in our city, then, um, you know, it, it, it should totally happen. Um, so yeah, we started, you know, Friday we announced it and literally we've raised in a couple of days, you know, $40,000. You just whispered to me before this, that you might have five more houses and I like my, my anxiety spiked <laughs> in a good way, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope I did the math right on 40 being our target of uh, how yeah. many houses we can pull off. But, you know, what we're also doing, what I learned with Feed the Frontline, is, and I've heard this from people, is they were like, you know, like you guys, by doing that, like you, you gave um, people hope in mm -hmm. a dark time. And not only are we creating jobs for these artisans, um, what we're going to do is actually create a, a moment where New Orleanians can be proud of their city. Mm -hmm. And that movement can bring people together, which can enable us as a community to help members of our community that need some support right now. Um, so I'm excited to see where, where it goes. And I think we have a golden opportunity to do some good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Devin, why don't you break down for us just how are we getting this, like, how are we going to decorate these houses and how are we getting that money yeah. to the right people? So what I learned with Feed the Frontline and the way that I would explain this to restaurant owners after the first couple of weeks when it was going real strong is I would tell them, look, there's an adorable puppy. Everybody wants to pet the puppy. People are dying to give the puppy a treat because the puppy is just so cute. It's like Baby Yoda. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Grogu. It, it, exactly. So in our situation, the adorable puppy is um, a wonderfully decorated house for Mardi Gras. And, or business, I guess I should say. And people are going to like salivate over that. And actually, it's going to be like a rare diamond. And people are going to want that precious, precious rare diamond so badly that they're willing to just part with all their excess income. Uh, to get that. And we're also sort of creating a situation of scarcity because we can only accomplish so many of these projects before Mardi Gras. Time is very sensitive. There's only so many workers. There's only so many floats that can be built. So there's only most likely 40 of them available in the world when you think about it. But we also learned from Feed the Frontline that it's not a rich person or a big company that's going to support your effort. It's regular people. So you have to create a situation where regular people can buy into it and stay engaged and feel like they're part of a movement. And so essentially we've got 40 houses. Half of them can be bought outright, commissioned. So if you're like a super rich person or a company, you can just give us $10,000 or more or more, more. <laughs> probably more. I think I'm actually going to have to raise the price. Well, because the problem is you get into these companies that like we, we just got an awesome uh, commission from Iberia Bank. But I'm like, oh, my God, this is a giant building on St. Charles. But no, yeah. yes. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah so, it, I mean, the cost is really dependent on labor and materials, which is dependent on how big of a float you're trying to build. So we have to be mindful of that. But basically, 
if you give us $10,000, we can pay people good wages. Mm-hmm. And like we more can, than you're getting in normal Mardi Gras, because a lot of people who are getting Mardi Gras that are making like $9 an hour. Yeah. But we're um, trying to pay at least 25 an hour, and if you're really fast at what you do, then it's even more. Right. So that's one track, and 20 houses can go that way. But then the other 20 are for the community. And so every time that we collectively raise $10,000 on our website, we can pull a name out of the hat and that person can have their house decorated by professionals. So it really means that like you can donate $5 and hit the Mardi Gras jackpot. And then you will probably have a really special Mardi Gras experience this year. Um, you know, the last person who won, because we've had two raffles so far. We've raised $20,000 by crowdfunding. And, um, you know, the last person uh, donated $25. And they're getting something that's equal to $10,000 basically in value. And from a larger scale, it's completely in line with the philosophy of, like, we need to celebrate the workers and the regular people. Um, you know, the artisans who make the floats, they need to be elevated. We need to celebrate who they are. And we need to make sure that every neighborhood in our city feels connected and feels like a true community. And I think that's like actually the secret of how we get through what is about to be a very awful uh, winter. Um, because I know from my wife, like from the doctor perspective, what is about to happen is going to be um, really bad. And what I think we have a chance to do is to walk into a terrible situation and just bring joy and beauty and uh, magic to it. And that, I think, might possibly get us through. Yeah. I mean, I could give you a whole very nerdy carnival lecture about the connection of Mardi Gras to, like, the Black Plague and all that kind of stuff. And it just... I think there's something about inherent in the DNA of Mardi Gras that is meant to help us deal with exactly times like this. And I have this vision, not beyond beyond just what we're doing with Feed, the second line, but across the city of being able to like drive in your car and have to pull over to the side of the road because you just saw the most beautifully decorated house you've ever seen. And you just got to take a moment and take it all in. And I want to see I want to see professionals like Mardi Gras professionals decorating houses and I also want to see people that have that are just complete amateurs and just making weird shit out of like pool noodles and tin foil and whatever they have on hand and I want to see the full cuz I think that's the beauty of Mardi Gras right is you see people out in like fully professionally made like beautiful kings and queens costumes and then you see somebody that was like I just put some fake hair in my butt crack and sat on this street corner and like oh, the guy the year that was Mardi Gras it was like freezing freezing like butt ass cold rainy uh-huh. and I'm coming downtown and he's wrapped in the comforter from his hotel and I was like <laughs> that's fucking genius yeah you are a tourist clearly but that's an amazing costume right like I can't wait to see the full range and it actually um once this started getting off the ground, I'm like, I'm actually excited about this Mardi Gras. Like, I'm looking forward to it. I want to see what people do. And I think that it's going to be, I think it's just the, the, this ongoing story of New Orleans where we continually get kicked in the gut and we are able to take that energy and just come back 
adversity with covered in glitter and a smile and we just are able to bring our community together and make it work and I'm hoping beyond just um, this moment of this sort of soft diplomacy for all the Mardi Gras artists I mean not not just float builders and we're trying to as best we can to also incorporate some costume designers into this as well and just give anybody a job who is related to the kind of the this devastation that Mardi Gras being canceled has caused and like we're trying to maybe rent out some um, music venues and bars that are closed right now to use as like workspaces for these artists and finding any job any way we can bring money back into that community but I'm hoping that people are more aware on the other end of this of the labor that goes into Mardi Gras because so much of this is being done behind closed doors and I think bringing it out into the streets is going to make people really appreciate just the the labor and the talent and that goes into it and to make realize that this is a part of the identity of the city and we should all be supporting these people even beyond covid and I, that brings me to this idea that we've been talking a lot about of just like fair trade Mardi Gras like how can we build a better Mardi Gras like not just for float builders but for everybody that makes Mardi Gras happen well that's what's exciting i think about this is that I, I, it, it's like a whole new setting is mm-hmm. literally actually being built for right. seeing Mardi Gras differently, right? And, right. And there is so much opportunity there to, for those of us that have wanted to kind of reimagine aspects of Mardi Gras for a long time, there's so much opportunity there. You know, one of them, yeah, you know, figuring out how to make sustainable livelihoods for the people that like produce this, but how to reduce waste. Can this be the Mardi Gras that we all finally realize that we don't need toxic plastic shit from China to like feel the connection and feel like we are in this and, and part of something beautiful together. We don't need that. Like that it's about giving, it's about giving your time. It's about giving to other things. And you know, th- there's an opportunity here. It's going to look different, but that doesn't mean it has to feel different. And I actually yeah. think it can feel better. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm working all the time as an artist, and my home and studio is on a busy corner. And one of the things that I've carved out separate from my professional paid artist work is creating art from trash that I put in my yard and on my corner and a lot of you have the traffic. most pop and pop hole in uptown <laughs> I have a side career of decorating potholes uptown and I've got um there's a there there's a busy local store corridor that I live by and there is a French immersion school around my corner and so between the mom and pop shops and the fancy kids schools there's a lot of foot traffic and the joy that I have shared with my neighbors and created stupid funny things out of garbage in my front yard potholes it's just been an experience different than what I've done as a professional artist in New Orleans my entire life and the opportunities that it's created to connect with people and kids especially has 
just been profound. And I'm excited that a lot of people are going to have the chance to experience that. Mm-hmm. Having art in their front yard for the first time, it really democratizes the Mardi Gras experience instead of watching it go down the major street on a float being pulled by a trailer suddenly you can have it in your front yard and I stepped out of my door to come here today and there was a man standing in front of my house taking a picture of my Christmas display and it was just nice to have a stranger there to say have a good night yeah yeah, I, I, when I lived in the Bywater, I was on a heavy traffic street, and I did a couple art installations there, and I did one that was kind of like a protest to Airbnb that kind of blew up, and it was, like, really fun to just, like, you get to engage with people, and people come, and they, like, knock on your door, and they want to talk to you, and you get to have, it's a, it is a form of communication, but it, it reminds me a lot of that same type of connection that you have when you're wearing a bomb-ass costume on the street. And it gives you this thing to talk about with strangers and you can kind of like have it be. And when it is some, you know, it, whether you're using it as a teaching moment or you're just using it as a moment to like laugh together. Um, I think it taps into that same energy. And I think there's something about Mardi Gras that um, I'm, I'm really curious to see with COVID and how we reinterpret it. Because you're basically pulling this thing apart and putting it back together again. And by doing so, you get to understand what the essence of that thing is. And what is the thing that makes that beyond all of the, the, the money that's been made over Mardi Gras and all the politics of Mardi Gras and all of that kind of stuff. Like, what is that core energy to it that allows people to, like, connect to their community and feel this kind of sense of, like, time out of time, you know? And I'm really hoping we get there. I feel really optimistic. What is your vision for Mardi Gras, Devin? Um, Well, I'm really excited to see the creativity. And I think that New Orleans, um, there's no way to know this for sure, but I would bet all of my money on this, that per capita, we probably have the most amount of people that engage in a cultural practice of any city in America possibly the world i would even willing i would be willing to bet that it might be the case because there's mardi gras indians there's baby dolls there's musicians there's so many different things happening and we're actually a very small city so what that does is it creates an environment of creativity and then you might be walking down the street and unbeknownst to you you're actually an artist you don't realize that till you see like um something amazing that blows your mind and then you're like oh my god i'm gonna start making something too and you might get inspired and i think that that's the like petri dish that we live in in new orleans uh so i think this mardi gras is going to be really fabulous because i think a lot of people are going to like channel that in a way that you know maybe they in the past never did and then they're going to be like well i'm just going to decorate my house this year because everybody's doing it and then they might accidentally stumble upon the greatest house decoration carnival thing that anybody's ever seen, you know. And, yeah, and that, that creative spirit is just going to flow. And I think it's also going to be, not to be a downer, but, like, you know, we're about to enter a very dark period. And I think while all of that darkness is around us, um, the creativity is going to be the hope, that comes through. So I think, um, 
you know, like I wasn't here in New Orleans for the Mardi Gras after Katrina. And I imagine that the COVID Mardi Gras will be sort of in a way comparable maybe to the Mardi Gras after Katrina. Um, and I'm sure like, I really wish I had experienced that. I just didn't live here then, but, um, I feel like it's going to be a very special Mardi Gras because I think it's how we can show our resiliency. And also just like, we're really creative and, um, you know, I'm excited to see what happens. And then, you know, you never know, like the best one could pop up anywhere, you know? Well, hopefully it'll be a lot less controversial having been here. I mean, I think that that's one thing that is working to our benefit is that we don't have the rest of the world, you know. I mean, maybe we will if we're irresponsible about it, but I don't think that we will be, I'm hoping, uh, that, you know, after Katrina, the rest of the world was like, I can't believe you're having Mardi Gras and, you know, we essentially aren't having Mardi Gras at least in the format that it did exist. And what's amazing is to see the people in this city taking the risks seriously and saying, okay, but we still want to feel these feelings and have these experiences. So how do we do that without, you know, creating a public health crisis? So hopefully that's not a controversial thing. And, it's just a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of solutions out there. And I'm hoping for customers that there are some solutions as well as far as how to take that into a space that is is safe and also just supports them. Because I, I, I think that, you know, we're talking about cultural bears here and obviously there's a lot of inf like emphasis here on the float builders, but I really want to find ways for those customers to be supported as well. And to feel like they are being seen and supported. And I'm hoping that even beyond COVID, that this does become a kind of opening up of ways to support this community. And I mean, Devin, you and me have been already been like scheming like freaking thieves on how to kind of use this as a foundation with be the second line on how to kind of reimagine how we support our community and um, I can only hope that this expands. Devin, will you be making a Mardi Gras costume this year? Will you be beaning something? I should say yes, but truthfully, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, that's um, fair enough because you're probably behind the scenes orchestrating things. Well, too. it's also like my feeling right now. I don't have the inspiration or the brain space to think about a bean suit. So I'm not quite there yet. Uh, normally this time of year I would know exactly what I'm going to make because our bean suits, like we start after Halloween to prepare for Lundi Gras because um, you really need a couple months to like make it like on point. Um, hopefully the inspiration will come because I know like we really sh should, like my family really should, but I'm not quite there yet which is kind of embarrassing. No, I think that's fair enough. I mean, I'm, I honestly share your feelings of, you know, I'm struggling to, you know, find the motivation and some days it's stronger than others. So, you know, it's fair hard enough. to do. It's hard to know too, like, what, like 
where are we going to be in lockdown? And like, you don't want to get too invested. Uh, yeah, I go back and forth. I, the, I've come up with about 50 ideas of things you could do where you're basically entirely encased in plastic. But um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if I have the energy to actually pull it off. But, uh, but yeah, what, what's your vision for, in general, for costumers? Like, you know, this is a costume podcast. Like, I feel like it's a tricky year for costumers because it is more of an intimate. I mean, we were just talking about with Red Beans and how it's a parade by its nature. You want to sit and really focus in on the detail of it. Um, and I know we've we've been scheming on our own with the house floats idea of ways to incorporate costuming, but just in the way of like, what are ways where people can connect this Mardi Gras and get that same energy that they get from putting on a bomb ass costume? Yeah, well, I think like this is a year that when you lose something that you love, um, you don't realize how much you love it till it's gone, kind of thing. And so, like one day, I was walking my dog and our children, and we were literally around the corner from here, and there was like a band playing music, like in a parking lot. It was like jazz music, like kind of like swinging sort of gypsy kind of jazz and i was like oh my god i haven't seen live music in months and this is the most beautiful thing i've ever stumbled upon and maybe costuming will be like that on mardi gras maybe there will be like one person by themselves walking down the street with their little music just in full-on costume and that moment i guarantee will probably happen somewhere in our city and maybe that'll be the moment that'll be the most beautiful costume you've ever seen. Because you'll be like, that is a, a, a moment of we will not give in and we will still be ourselves. We are weird and we are crafty and creative. And um, there's probably somebody who will do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope that I see that. You know? And you're dying of thirst in the desert, you know, and it's yeah. just that one little <laughs> sip of water. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the name of the crew is Red Beans, but I'm curious, what are the qualities in a bean that you look for for good crafting? Are there some beans that lend themselves to creativity more than others? Oh, yeah. Like, is a, do you, is there like a reject bean? Yeah. Well, there's a, you know, it's, it's cool because um, there's actually so many different types of beans. So you really have a full color palette to work with and different sizes to work with. And, our suits are mainly made with hot glue. Um, oh. A lot of hot glue. and Kind of cooks the bean a little bit? A little bit, yeah, probably. And, you know, you also have um, things to consider. Like, did you know that rats really like black eyed peas? Yeah. Yeah, I remember at one point, this is when you were still doing the beaning in your house uh, and having everyone over, and you got a cat in your basically. <laughs> We had to get a cat because there was too many rats in the apartment. Yeah, it's how many true. bags of beans does it take to make a your average suit, your average coat? Let's say. Um, not totally sure. I mean, we get them like in bulk in twenty-five pound sacks from Camellia Bean Company. They graciously give us hundreds of pounds of beans every year. Yeah, that um, was a, that was a boom they did not realize was happening. In- yeah, <laughs> totally. Like bean sales are on the up. You know. <laughs> Um, and not just because of quarantine, but yeah. I did buy I'm, a bunch of beans in quarantine. I will admit I was one of those people. Yeah, yes. me too. I mean, I was like, hell, I got to have my beans too. You know, <laughs> I really do love beans. 
like more than most people. Um, I was just inspired, you know, just like you have been inspired by beans for costuming. I've been inspired by beans, uh, poetically beans, beans, the more, the musical fruit, the more you glue them, the more you suit. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, you know, puns are like part of our tradition too, which has been, um, who knew that that would uh, organically become part of our? Yeah, the red beans are clever. You guys are clever. I love it. Well, there, you know, there's different ways. There's different routes to your bean suit. You can be focused on a pun, like Benjamin Franklin, or you can go just like a concept um, that has no joke in at all. But people's creativity is just like off the chain. I mean, it's just when you allow people the space to be creative, they will show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think but uh, when I won Queen, I was Bean of the Nile, and I made uh, a uh, whole kind of Cleopatra outfit. And it was my, f- I remember it was one of my first parades that I walked in because um, I was a little baby artist and just moved to the city. And I remember starting it, and I, you know, the, the royalty is fronting the parade, and I'd never been in that position before, and I got, like, major stagecraft. Or a stage fright, and I um, chugged a bunch of alcohol all at once. And I remember just coming to twerking on Frenchmen, and I think I kissed every member of the Treme Brass Band. Not on the lips, but like it was a lot of twerking and kissing of the Treme Brass Band. So I've gotten a little better about being okay in front of crowds, but that was my first experience. God, the before times. Yeah, I wonder, are there (laughs) any... Good old before times when you could lick and kiss. Lick and kiss. That makes me wonder, are there any bean-based alcohols? Oh, there's got to be, right? There's like a lot of sugar in that, right? So there was like a brewery here locally till they went out of business, but they made a bean beer, Mm. a red bean beer. That's terrible. It was actually pretty good. And I'm a beer snob because I've married into a Belgian family. Ah. And, you know, the Belgians, chocolate and beer, that's their thing. And hedges. They're really, really about hedges, like properly cut. I have to acknowledge, too, that Devin brought us uh, Belgium chocolate as part of this, which is on brand of just, like, smoothing every conversation with food. And I am full support of that. Caroline, I totally, I guess, forgot that you were queen of red beans. I, what is All that hail. experience? All hail. Oh, yeah. My queen um, bean. That um, was that was early on. Like I said, Caroline is a baby artist. I had uh, I was queen the first year. And then the second year, I did drag as Huey P. Long. And I actually made like a little soapbox that I stood on. I had like fake money that I bribed people. Because something that she knows about red beans is they vote on their kings and queens and the princess with the princess being the most ridiculous costume and so i was like well if we're gonna be voting then i gotta go as like a louisiana politician right so i was like shoving money into people's hands and doing everything i could to like garner that vote and had a whole like seersucker suit situation going on um but yeah that was and i and i was i was very committed to red beans for a couple of years. And then I um, ended up just through my work, I ended up working on Proteus and Proteus is Monday night as well. So I ended up kind of getting sucked into that instead, but which we're still sad about. I know. It's I always know. hard to lose such a good costumer. M- what, maybe one day I need to just like <laughs> abandon red, uh, 
abandon Proteus for one night and then come in and have my what do they call that like revival show or something I'll come I'll come and uh revisit but <laughs> it's the it's the challenge of you get so sucked into Mardi Gras that you just every you just you're you're all over the place it's, you Plus, can't do everything a highlight of Lundy Gras for me is walking over to the uptown parade route and seeing you riding on the artist float in Proteus yeah yeah. So you can't throw off my tradition. There we go. It's like you just, it's, uh, you're pull, pulled in every direction, like drawn and quartered. But <laughs> Caroline gave me a golden paintbrush on the parade route last year. That has a place the, of honor in my studio. All the brushes that die uh, in the making of a float get painted gold and handed out because there's a lot of brushes. I have a them. royal artist paintbrush. There we go. It's cherished. <laughs> Devin, what is your favorite Red Beans costume that you've ever worn? Um, hmm. Ooh. I don't know one that, for me, I guess, like, we had a, you know, because I've had children, and every year we make a family suit. And um, one year, a couple years ago, our um, cousins came from Mardi Gras, these two teenage girls from rural Virginia, uh, who were like 14 and 17 and we made all of us a family costume and we found these really strange paper mache dolls from the junk store in the Bywater that also sells Mexican folk art and crafts and we based our entire suit on these dolls so every person had their own doll and then we recreated the doll on our back out of beans and it was like matching so the same outfit colors all that stuff and then on the front, we had the doll itself. And the ladies wore dresses, and the fellows had, you know, suit jackets, and we were just matchy-matchy. Um, and that was really fun because, um, you know, I have my two, two young children parading with us that think it's normal. Yeah, are they, are they <laughs> agreeable to costuming? As a mom who's, like, gone through this and had, you know, any year was always a hit or miss, like, whether they'd actually wear the costumes they pretended to be so excited about for months was, you know, you never knew till the day of. <laughs> are your kids, are they are they into it? Uh, we just try to get, like, a family picture and then they can take <laughs> yeah, off that's the... slow bar. Yeah, because, like... Make the, it look good for Facebook. Yeah, the, well, the bean suits are quite heavy. Yeah. And then, like, I have to go all out on my bean suit. And my son, Marcus, basically has to match what my suit is. So Marcus gets stuck wearing a very heavy three-year-old jacket. Um, and that doesn't last very long. And then we were worried about, like, choking hazards as well. So, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, there's you a know, lot of considerations um, that go into it. But uh, that would probably be – that. that's the one that comes to mind, I guess. I still um, remember uh, one of the last years I, I, I beamed with y'all and you had just started dating your now wife and she won as, I think she had a Phoenix outfit. Yeah. And uh, there was a female Mardi Gras Indian as part of your group and she was pissed that I didn't win. She was like, you should have won, all this kind of stuff. And then but then she saw that your your wife won and she kind of looked like, was gesturing over to her like, he's going to marry that woman. And he just like kind of it was like it was it was like I think she I didn't care because I already won king and queen I was like I've I've won all the royalty I don't need any more awards but I think she felt like she needed to comfort me which I didn't need but whatever and but her comfort to me was like uh well I mean she won but 
they're going to get married. Like, it's clear that this is, like, true love. So <laughs> it's like, this is okay. And, like, she was, like, approving it <laughs> from afar. But, yeah, so I everybody. love true love Mardi Gras stories. There's a few of them around yeah. town. yeah. Well, that's like to me, it's really crazy when I think about my life, because literally if I didn't make a bean suit for Halloween, then my children would not exist. It's a butterfly effect, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's wild. Like my wife joined the crew. That's how I met her. Yeah. You created Um, like a honeypot. Totally. (laughs) I was like, come hither, doctor lady. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of my life started on Halloween too, so I can relate. Uh, Very cool. Well. This has been amazing. Uh, thank you so much, Devin, for sharing all of your magic, not just here, but with the city of New Orleans. And um, I just hope that this is just a foundation going forward of many amazing projects to come. Yeah, well, thank you know, thanks so much for having me. Um, I always love you know having the opportunity to really talk about costuming yeah. because it really is an art form that is so important here. Uh, to like the everyday life of most of the people that live here. And I think that that's very different than every other place I've ever been to in my life. Um, so I'm I'm really happy that you guys like actually have a, a show dedicated to that because there's just so many stories out there to find. Oh, yeah. And then once you realize it, you're like, holy crap, we live in the city that's just like overflowing with creativity. And yeah. once we realize that, um, you know, we really are what makes this place special. Um, I believe that. And I think that once we realize that, we'll then realize like, oh, well, because we are the thing that's special, we need to take care of the special thing. So let's do that too, you know. Um, well, you are an incredible steward for a lot of energy and, you know, um, I – just have so much respect for you and I'm grateful for all the ways that you step up and find, you know, and a way to make a change and a way to make a difference utilizing, you know, all the resources that you have at hand and the people around you to make so many people's lives better. It's really special. Well, thank you. It's uh, not, not one bean that makes the pot. It's all the beans together. You know, I, I just love living here. I, I literally don't want to live anywhere else ever. Um, and my father-in-law, who lives in right outside of Washington, D.C., um, Papa Luke, if you're listening, uh, he's always like, you should do your bean parade up here in Falls Church, Virginia. <laughs> and I try to imagine that for a second, and you're like, oh, I can't do it. Can't possibly ever consider that. Uh, so I... I feel very fortunate to live here and um, I'm happy to be part of the community. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Uh, that was. I'm so glad that we got to get Devin in to talk about all of his Mardi Gras magic during this time. It's inspiring. It definitely is. Yeah. And um, just for people that want to keep up, um, 
you can uh, find out more about the project that I'm working on with Devin right now at uh, hireamondegrasartist.com. And if you donate, even if it's just like a dollar, it puts you in the raffle to have your house. As long as you're in Orleans Parish, you can have your house completely redone by a group of professional Mardi Gras artists. Um, but even if you don't live in Orleans Parish, it's a great way to contribute and make sure that these incredible people that have donated their blood, sweat, and tears to make Mardi Gras happen are able to stay, you know, keep a roof over their heads and just stay employed. Um, and hopefully beyond even that effort with Feed the Second Line and everything, I mean, you didn't get too deep into it because obviously it's still pie in the sky stuff. But um, when you really talk to Devin one-on-one, um, he has big dreams for this project of just being a social safety net for creatives across the city and really making sure that this is a, you know, that we, we support these people, especially in a city that relies so heavily on tourism, that uh, we are making sure we're giving back to these people that make this city such a draw for people. This is not the Mardi Gras to sit Mardi Gras out. I'm sure that a lot of people feel like, oh, this is, I don't really care. This is the Mardi Gras. Like, and that's fine. Don't care. Leave town. Don't participate. Whatever. But if in doing that, you could still remember that many people here are going to suffer if collectively we decide we don't care about Mardi Gras. And there's no reason to do that because there are so many ways that you can show that you care about Mardi Gras. And that is by caring about the people who rely on Mardi Gras to survive. And so, you know, I really encourage people to think about ways, you know, find support, feed the second line. Tip your waiter at, you know, DoorDash Extra. Find a live feed and tip a musician. Commission a headpiece from someone if you've always thought of doing something like that. Find some way, somehow, to be a part of supporting those who, you know, are really worried right now about yeah. Their ability to survive without this and without that money. If you don't use it, you lose it. Exactly. You know? So just make sure these... And honestly, like, and even beyond that, I mean, any way that people can support all these hospitality workers, all the kind of secondhand individuals that are able, to, that, that rely on that, that boom of tourism, but maybe you're not in the limelight, you know? This is the time to really reach out and just see how you can help. And sometimes it's a matter of just listening figuring out where your role is in that. I mean, even if you are maybe not a, a great organizer, maybe you can put together a raffle or of your friends and just raise a little money or whatever it is. There's always a way in which you can contribute within your specific skill set. So I hope that this is an inspiring episode. I know that, you know, yeah, we all wish that it could be different, but it's not. And that's okay because we're here for each other. And in being here for one another, we can create something that's really beautiful and potentially transformative and can, you know, not just save this Mardi Gras, but 
save Mardi Gras in the future to make Mardi Gras better for everybody. I know that sounds like really pie in the sky, which is not my usual you know, oh, I'm I'm full pie in the sky right now. But I have deep fantasies I believe, about. I do believe, right? Well, because I think it is this moment we get kind of stuck in these little grooves, you know, in New Orleans, and and we just accept that the system we have set up is the system that has always been there and will always be there. But I'm hoping through this that a lot of Mardi Gras artists realize their worth and realize that. Um, these are the people, like whether they're the float builders or whether they're the costume makers that make Mardi Gras what it is. And whether it's through their absence or having them to kind of pivot in a, in a strange way that we get to kind of really appreciate them and realize that this is what makes Mardi Gras Mardi Gras. And I'm really hoping that we find creative ways of applying the, those skills and, you know, during COVID in um unorthodox ways yeah well i want to thank Devin again for coming on thank you julianne thank you caroline this was an amazing night um i feel so reassured and inspired and listen out there uh don't worry we have more great stuff lined up for you um that's gonna keep you feeling the mardi gras love and connecting with very as- various aspects of Mardi Gras. So please keep listening. Please share us. Please follow us. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, basically anywhere you can find your podcast. So, you know, go ahead, hit that subscribe button, and share us. Seriously, if you can do anything for us right now and for Mardi Gras, share this podcast so that people around you can get inspired as well because that's what we need right now is to put our heads together and find a way to to get through this in in a meaningful and intentional and beautiful way yeah and leave us a good review like whatever you can do like we that's a free way in which you can be supporting your creative community don't hesitate to call in with your own costume confession. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, what's we, that number, Julianne, for costume confessions? 504-252-0527. Yeah, yes. seriously. Nothing would cheer us up more than to get some messages hearing about, like, your worst costume fail during Mardi Gras or... Or your, your best your, costume fail. Yeah, your triumphs. I want like, those Mardi Gras hookups. Like the the Mardi Gras sweetheart stories are that's my soft spot. Or tips, you know, mm-hmm. like, or maybe where a costume persona just overtook in a positive or negative way in your life. Yeah, I mean any of that. Like, give us the goods or the, the good worst stuff. hot glue burn you've ever gotten. I've gotten one in my inner thigh that was pretty traumatic. So. I have gotten a hot glue gun on my burn on my calf. I've stepped on a hot glue, the nozzle, like the hot metal part of a hot glue gun. That's another story. Anyway, share your pain, share your love, share your pleasure. Costume Confessions, 504-252-0527. Talk about it. All right. Well, if you want to keep up with what Julianne, Caroline, and I are up to, and I mean, at this point, God even knows our worlds are topsy-turvy right now but we're figuring it out as we go along we do a pretty good job of updating y'all on our social media handles you can find me at 
NOLA Costume Center on Instagram and Facebook. My store, the New Orleans Costume Center, is open right now. So come on down for some handmade costumes and costume making supplies. We've got some good stuff in there. And Julianne, where can our listeners keep up with you? Well, I'm starting the transition from Made by Julianne to my new social media accounts, Lady Paradise Studio. Ooh, so you'll be able sexy. to catch me on either channel. Yeah, and I'm over at C to the line. That's the letter C to the line um, to see any of my creative endeavors. And then I have a separate Instagram called Feast and Folly, which is all of my hardcore Mardi Gras and global carnival and masking tradition nerd outs. So if you want to see me just kind of go deep down some archival dive, that's where to find me. But yeah, either of those. And you can get in touch with us anytime at Costume Talk by sending us an email, costumetalk at gmail.com. Of course, you can message us on the Instagram or Facebook. We do have pages. Costume Talk is our handle. We're excited for the season ahead, as challenging as it may be. So I hope you will continue to tune in and listen and let us hold hands together as we navigate the new Mardi Gras. Yeah, and share with us all of your creative endeavors. We want to see them. We want to celebrate them. Yes, we definitely do.